to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're jumping back into Ephesians 4 this morning and kind of dovetailing off of last week's message. We're going to pick back up in verse 25, and I'm going to read it for us this morning. Beginning in verse 25, let's read all the way to verse 32. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, living the good life? Some of you right now are thinking about sitting on a beach in Hawaii. Some of you are thinking about your future retirement away from the busyness and chaos of the life of work that you've been living. Some of you are just thinking about this summer and getting up to the cottage and kicking your feet up on, on the dock and looking out at God's beauty and creation. And, and I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's as simple as success in life. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's relationships or romance. The phrase, living the good life, actually originated from Aristotle. When he spoke of it, though, he wasn't speaking about luxury, but of morality. He was speaking of the good life as being the ethical life, the moral life, or the virtuous life. And this is what the world, by the way, has often been after. How do we live well? How do we live a fulfilling life? And in our passage today, Paul gives us a glimpse, really, of the good life. In many ways, these things would be in line with Aristotle and even many other world religions or systems of morality, but there's one word that sets it apart from every other religion or system in the world, and that is the word that Paul begins with in verse 25, therefore. That one little word is the key distinction that separates this form of morality from every other form of morality that this world has to offer. You can ask the question, what makes Christianity absolutely unique in its call to morality? And the answer is fairly simple. It's not the call to be good in and of itself, but rather the message of how to be good that distinguishes Christianity. And this one word roots all of Paul's ethical and moral instruction in what we've already learned about God and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. You see, if you remove this section of Scripture, this passage from its context, it would easily be a list of rules. That's all it could be. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this. But within its context, you see it has practical implications of what God has done for us in Christ to make us new people. In other words, when Paul says you need to live the good life, what he's really calling us to do is learn how to live the new life. Almost every religion in the world says this is the way to be good, or that you must be good. They say things like, become what you are not. All self-help teaches you is to become what you're not. If you're not pure, simply become pure. If you're not selfless, then simply become selfless. If you're selfish, then stop being selfish. But Christianity says, be who you already truly are in Jesus Christ. Recognize where your identity is already found and understand that your identity shapes the way you live out your life. It doesn't produce an identity for you. Understanding this concept, that Paul is rooting all of his instruction for us this morning in our identity, our 
a bought life purchased out of the slave market of sin, redeemed life, and our new life in Jesus Christ. All of that is so foundational for understanding what Paul is going to command us to do. That's the primary interpretive key to understanding this passage. That's only one of the interpretive keys, though. Let me give you a couple more. All of these, you'll see, comes in the form of a negative and positive command that are coupled together. So Paul begins to talk about not lying and instead telling the truth. He says, don't steal and instead work, and so on and so forth. It's so important to see this the way that God intended us to, because I think that there are so many people who understand Christianity the wrong way. They think it's all about what you don't do. It's just a list of don'ts, and it feels crippling, and it feels duty-bound all the time. I used to have a professor in seminary, a Greek professor, who would kind of all the time rail against legalistic Christianity, and he always quote a kind of an old kind of fundamentalist slogan, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't chew, and don't go with girls who do, right? As if that was the defining feature of Christianity. It's all about what you don't do. It's all about abiding by a certain strict set of don'ts. And I think it's important to understand that this ultimately, I think, is rooted in a faulty view of God. A faulty view of God as, as somehow being this cosmic killjoy. He, he exists simply to tell us what we can't do because God loves to kill all of our fun. God's up in heaven thinking, how can I make life as miserable as possible for all these people? Let's take away everything they love to do. Let's take away all their joy. Sadly, that's the way that so many people think about God. But what we see here in God giving us commands to stop and then to start, it's helpful to understand just a better theology of God. You see, God isn't a cosmic killjoy. God is for our joy. And when he tells us don't do something, he's telling us don't hurt yourself. Don't do something that's actually going to steal your joy. God is in it for our greater joy. And I love how C.S. Lewis paints this picture. He says our problem is not that, you know, in our fight over sin, it's not that our desires are too strong. You know, we're always feeling this strong desire for sin. C.S. Lewis says our problem is our desires are too weak. We don't desire enough joy. We don't desire the greatest joy. And so we stop ourselves short by settling for the temporary, ultimately unsatisfying joy that's found in sin instead of running further and persevering harder towards the greater joy that is offered in God and in obedience. You see here, we're reminded that destructive behavior doesn't need to just stop. It needs actually to be replaced and that's why repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin in the Christian life. We're always called to be turning from sin and turning toward what is better, faith, trust. And the truth is, if we don't turn from sin and trust in Christ every single day, we'll turn to some other destructive behavior. Let me give you two more interpretive keys before we jump in. These will be quick. You see, you see here that these instructions that Paul gives, these commands, are both relational as well as theological. The relational, in other words, they're given to us in the context of community. I read a story a few years ago about a guy in uh, the U.S. who decided he wanted to perform this social experiment in his own life, and so he decided that he was going to hire a pilot to drop him off in the middle of northern Canada for six months so he could be all by himself for six months. It's crazy. And he gets back, and, and a reporter is kind of following up on the story, kind of made headline news, and they ask this guy, the reporter says, what did you learn from your experience? And his only answer was this, I learned that it is not good for man to be alone. <laughs> We're not meant to do life in isolation. And Paul reminds us here that all of the way we live our life is done so in the context of community. That is the place where God is developing our character. We don't develop character in a monastery, not truly. We develop it in community. And you'll notice here that these are all deeply theological. The, the commands that do this, do this are all rooted with theological infrastructure or underpinnings. In each case, a reason for the command is either given or implied, but it is always deeply theological. And Paul is reminding us, just constantly remember that belief produces behavior. Right thinking equals right living. So he never gets far when he gives a command from rooting it into some foundational doctrinal truth. Okay, that's just the introduction. That's from therefore. I promise you the rest will go a little bit quicker. I trust that will help us dig into these 
now and understand them to the proper grid. We want to learn here how to live the good life, and we do so by learning how to live the new life in Christ. So let's do that. Paul gives us five five ways to live the new life, and this is not an exhaustive list, but it is certainly important for us to consider. The first, first call he gives us is this, don't lie, speak truth. Don't lie, speak truth. If you want to live the new life in Jesus Christ, if you want to be who you are, it begins with learning how to be a person of truthfulness. And here, we see back in verse 25, Paul makes it very clear. Therefore, having put away falsehood, reminding us again that our identity is found in what Christ has already done for us, but then the call to put on the new self is coming. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Here, the idea behind lying it can also be translated simply as falsehood. The idea here is that there is to be no dishonesty in the context of community. Do you see the theological underpinnings there? He's talked about lying one to another. The idea here, members of one another, is that we are the body of Christ. This is the theological reason why we are supposed to fight for the truth, because the context, the body of Christ, is to be a place where truth prevails. Now, dishonesty and lies are not uncommon. They weren't in the ancient world, and they aren't today. They're as old as man himself. And you know what I mean about this being common. You, you know that the, the, the temptation or, or even maybe the, the reality of lying is actually probably true in your own life to some degree. I mean, we can think of all different kinds of contexts where we begin to kind of, kind of you know, just fudge the truth a little bit, uh, uh, just go over the top a little bit more than we intended to. And it begins at a young age. We all know as kids we cheated when playing board games with our siblings, right? You can admit it. I mean, can you just picture for a moment the, the lights and the sirens in your rearview mirror? And you know as the police officer comes up to your car and is about to ask you the question, sir, do you know how fast you were going? And you're going to say, no, I, I have no clue. I mean, nobody says, officer, uh, I know you clocked me at 30, but I was actually going 35. Or you instantly begin to think about ways to get out of the ticket. You know, how am I going to get myself out of this one? You know, officer, I, I was, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize how fast I was going. I was praying <laughs> for you. And all kidding aside, for some of us, this is actually a real problem. We lie all the time. It's become a part of our character. It's become a part of who we are, how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And some of us are caught in the vicious cycle of lies that have compounded, and we've built up these kind of facades around us because one lie leads to another lie, and then there's a bigger lie and a bigger lie, and we're just waiting for the day for the whole thing to come crashing down around us. We live in this perpetual state of falsehood. And it's easy to see why this is the case, not just internally. We understand that sin is at work within us, but we live in a culture that is filled with deception and falsehood, all right? Fake news is everywhere, right? And even if it's not, it is oftentimes manipulated and distorted from a certain perspective or bias to communicate partial truths or certain truths at the expense of other truths. We see all the time statistics and information being manipulated to sell a point. We see this just in the realm of sales and marketing techniques that are so often built upon lies. But the greater, greater problem here is the falsehood within us. The Greek word that Paul uses here for lies or, or falsehood is the word pseudo in the Greek. It's where we get the word pseudo from. And I think that's a really accurate way just to understand the concept of what Paul is communicating here. You see, every time we lie, we put out a pseudo-version of ourselves, a fake version of ourselves cloaked as if it is somehow reality. We provide airbrushed pictures of ourselves, airbrushed to perfection. We want people to think certain ways about us. I'm smarter than you think I am. I'm more successful than you thought I was. I'm more important than you imagined. 
And some of you really feel the weight of this even now because you know this is the way that you're living. You know you're living two lives. You know that around your church and, and your, your church friends and maybe even your small group, you're living one way, but then when you go to work or you're out in the world, you live an entirely different way. You have a pseudo-life. And the answer isn't to ignore that part of you, but simply to acknowledge it and to turn from it and to put on the new self, as Paul has called us to in Ephesians 4. But let me ask the question kind of below the surface, why do we lie ultimately? And I think there are a variety of reasons. I think, I think many of us lie because we're seeking the approval of others. We desperately want to fit in. We want them to think a certain way of us. We want them to perceive us a certain way. We're consumed with our reputation, and so we have to paint a reputation that is different from reality because we believe it's important. Many of us lie because of our insecurities about who we are, what we've accomplished, what our life appears to be. Many of us lie out of control. We, we long to manipulate others, and we know that lying is a way of getting others to do what we want because we're so busy building our kingdom and stepping all over people to do it. Some of us are lying to get out of consequences. Some of us are simply just lying to make life easier. Yeah, no, I can't come into work today. <coughs> you know, our hearts are torn between who God has called us to be and who our flesh wants us to be. And the call here is to put it off and replace it with truth. And it begins with being honest with yourself and others. This is a call to speak truth one to another, to his neighbor. And, and I think we can see that in a couple of ways. One, it's a call to speak truth to unbelievers about the reality of Jesus Christ. But in the context of God's community and family, I think this is in one sense a call to be truthful in terms of transparency about who you really are, about what you're really dealing with in life, about how you're struggling in life. Remember, Paul grounds this in community because we are members one of another. He's talking primarily about how we live life in the body of Christ. I love what John Stott says about this passage. He says this, fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. So falsehood undermines fellowship while truth strengthens it. This is a call for transparency. This is a call to understand that God wants us to stop hiding who we are and be honest. You see, when you're not honest in community, just think about the repercussions of this. Everybody else thinks you have it all together. And when everybody else thinks you have it all, all together, they're feeling under pressure to now project the idea that they have it all together. And it perpetuates this cycle of superficiality where you have a bunch of people playing the game like they all have it together when most of us really don't. It's the cycle in Christian community of of staying superficial and never getting to the real issues and struggles in life and then never being able to really serve one another well and help each other. You know, I think we understand this. We see this, right? We see this in, in prayer times often in the Christian life. You say, give me an example. Okay, here you go. Right, in prayer time, we know when you're sitting around in prayer circles and you're, you're doing the Christian thing and, and you're, you're about to pray and say, okay, let's take some prayer requests. And it's silent for most of the time because nobody wants to talk. But then finally somebody works up the nerve to say, okay, uh, all right, maybe, they get, maybe you got picked on one time and somebody says, uh, how about you, Ian? What do you have to, to pray about? What can we pray for you about in your life? Oh, okay, well, well. Uh, oh, this is, this is really important. Uh, my grandma's cat has a cough. Can we pray for that, please? And obviously, I, I'm, I'm Joe, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but we've all been there where all of a sudden some unrelated prayer requests, certainly unrelated to us, very distant requests for something somewhat superficial gets tossed out. You're like, really? That's what's going on in your life right now? That's the most pressing concern in your life? I would argue that there is a lack of transparency if all we can think of in terms of asking people to pray for us is something superficial or really unrelated to us. When we hold back the truth of what's really going on in our lives, it makes our community shallow and it renders us less effective than we could truly be. It does a disservice to those around you. Speaking truth also means, by the way, being willing, not just, listen, to be honest and transparent about who you are, but being willing to speak truth into other people's lives. 
There are what we call sins of commission, sins we commit, and sins of omission, things we neglect to do that we know we ought to do, and the Bible tells us very clearly that those things are sin as well. And oftentimes we can come away from a conversation with somebody and, and maybe you're thinking, well, I, got, I just got to make sure I don't do, I don't lie. I'm not false in how I portrayed myself or, or told the story. And you can walk away saying, well, I, I didn't lie. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. But let me ask you the question. Did you speak the truth? Did you speak into somebody's life? Did you encourage them with the truth of God's word? Did you correct their thinking about something that may be destructive and unhealthy in their life? You see, growth in the Christian community and in our personal lives depends on our willingness to speak truth to each other and our willingness to hear truth from one another. This is crucial for living the new life. Secondly, notice this, don't lose control, control your anger. Don't lose control, instead, control your anger. Here, Paul moves in verse 26 and 27 more into the emotional category of our lives. He says in verse 26, interestingly enough, a command, an imperative, be angry and do not sin. Some of us just simply major on God's commanded us to be angry. That's unfortunate. See, really, is Paul commanding us to be angry here? Yes. But you see, Paul is assuming here a distinction between unrighteous anger and righteous anger. And he draws from Psalm 4.4 here. Most of your cross-references should show you that there is a connection to Psalm 4.4, which indicates that there is a good and a right type of anger, and we're even commanded to experience it. I mean, in chapter 5, I believe, just in verse 6, oh, I think I'm wrong. I believe somewhere in chapter 5 here, he's going to tell us, no one's heaved empty words, for because of these things, the rare it is, the the anger there of God, it is, verse 6, the wrath of God comes upon us. So in other words, uh, God himself demonstrates anger. God himself is a God of wrath. And so all anger cannot be sinful. We can't miscategorize this here. Jesus, if you remember, was angry as he walked into the temple and he saw the trading taking place in the temple courts and he walks in himself and and he makes a whip and he flips tables and he drives the moneylenders out of the temple courts in righteous anger. You could argue that proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and health. Again, let me quote John Stott. He he says this so wonderfully. He says, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings, he says, compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. There is a right sense in which we should look at some of the injustice in the world and the atrocities in this world, the acts of evil in this world, and it should stir within us a righteous, holy indignation. You should hear about racism or see racism, and it should fuel the fires of righteous anger within your heart. You should hear about things like rape and incest and murder, and it should fire up a holy wrath within your soul. There are right reasons to be angry, but here we need to take note of this as well. There is a fine line between righteous indignation and righteous anger and unrighteous anger. There's a fine line between being angry with a holy anger and being sinfully angry. And so Paul here, he explains this and he qualifies it. He says, be angry and do not sin. It's really easy to begin with righteous indignation in our humanness and our fallenness and to slide quickly into an unrighteous, unholy, sinful anger. He gives us three qualifications here. He says, be angry and do not sin. That's the first qualification. Even good anger can become sinful anger if we don't keep it in check. If we lose control even of righteous anger, it can get bad quick. 
So maybe we can ask some questions to help diagnose our anger. How do I know, maybe you're asking, if my anger is righteous anger? And how do I know if it's slipped maybe into the category of sinful anger? Here's just three simple questions. One is this, has it become personal? Has it become personal? Are you now more angry because somebody has offended you? Or are you still angry that they have offended God? How about this second question? Does it control you or do you control it? Has it begun to affect your behavior in ways that seem like they're out of your control? In other words, are you finding yourself getting short and snippy and sharp and rude? Maybe it's not even in outbursts like that. Maybe some of you know, you know, we're very different, all of us in here, and there's a spectrum of how we exhibit or express anger in our lives. There's some people who clam up on one end of the spectrum and some people who blow up. We know that. Some of us really are good at internalizing our anger, right? We can, we can retreat in isolation and we can fume in our hearts in anger. Some of us can't even do that. We just instantly go into blow-up mode, right? And we just make a mess of everything. But can we just acknowledge this morning, listen, that regardless of where you fall on this scale, whether you internalize or externalize your anger, both of those things are incredibly destructive. They do great damage to you internally and to others externally. How about this third question? Is your anger steering you toward retaliation or restoration? This is a great diagnostic question to know what kind of anger you're experiencing. If, if your heart longs to lash out at the person who's done the harm or the sinning instead of reach out, there's a good chance your anger has moved into this sinful category. And here he says, be angry and do not sin. And then look what he says we should do instead. Don't let the sun Go down on your anger. And this is just a, a really kind of metaphorical way of calling us to deal quickly with our anger. There is an urgency implied in this statement. It's not literal. Don't be overly literal here, right? This is not saying you must get everything dealt with before the sun goes down, although that's a great principle. The principle here is deal quickly with your anger before it gets out of control. If you let it fester, it will turn into bitterness. Being angry is one thing, being an angry person is another. And our job is to seek restoration with others, not to stew on our anger and to exact vengeance. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay, he says. And this is so important in the context of community that we deal with offenses and we deal with anger in our hearts toward other people. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, listen to what he says. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And here's the command in, in terms of that, the concept of being angry, and those are all sinful expressions and, and slandering and vengeful insults. He says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, reconciliation comes before worship. And this is why it's so important for us to constantly be dealing with offenses and to go to one another and to work hard at this. And here's another reason. Here's the theological reason he gives. Listen to what he says. And don't give the devil, look at that. Some translations say a foothold. Here it says an opportunity. Literally, this word can be translated as, as a location. Don't give him a place in your life. Don't give him any kind of ground there. Don't give him a place to set up base camp in your life and to begin to tamper with things he's not supposed to be tampering with. You see, the theological reason why we're called to deal with our anger in this way is because of spiritual warfare. Because the devil is real and he lashes on to anger. You can ask this question, you know, based on this text. Who does Satan love to hang around? The simple answer, angry people. 
I mean, he, he loves it. He loves to latch on to angry people. You say, why? Why is this theologically such a big deal? Because here he sees an opportunity to produce division and disunity in the body of Christ. Right? What God is busy unifying, he sees as the greatest opportunity here to break apart. Let's just keep people angry with one another, and the body will never be able to band together and do anything effective for the Lord. It's such a strategic place of operation for Satan And here we see that anger throws the door open for temptation. It can give the devil a foothold. He knows the destruction and disunity, revenge and division that can be caused in the body of Christ. And here we're called to deal with it. And you know, below our anger, you can ask this question, why do we get angry? The simple answer is pride. Pride manifested in all kinds of ways. Just read James 4. Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? It's not this. Your passions wage war within you. Think about the last fight you had. If you're married in here, right? Think about the last fight you had with your spouse and just think about what you were fighting over and then boil it back down to this. At the end of the day, you could say this with confidence, I believe, this morning. At the end of the day, I was fighting for what I wanted and they were fighting for what they wanted. Me, 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 me is the heart of almost every single argument you will ever get into. Not argument, fight. And here, we need to be reminded of how we deal with our anger. Don't lose control. Control your anger. Submit it to the Lord. Third, look at what he says about living this new life. He says, don't steal. Work. And then he adds on top of that, give. This is really, really interesting to think about here. He says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's so interesting because here he's assuming that there are thieves among us, right? There's thieves in the church. Many of us have dulled our consciences in this area and we need it reawakened. I I just wonder if you'd think for a moment about the reality of theft in your own life. Is it possible that you are engaging in thievery even at this very moment? Some of us have unauthorized software on our computers. Some of us have pirated videos or illegal internet streaming that we do on a regular basis. Some of us are stealing time at work and we know it. Some of us are stealing money from our employees. Some of us are stealing money from the government, not paying our taxes and not recording things properly. And I know we can justify it in all different kinds of ways, right? We can come up with a million different ways to justify it and, and reasons why we should be okay with this, but it doesn't matter how you turn it or how you want to say it, wrong is wrong. You can call it long-term borrowing if you want. It doesn't make a difference. When we steal, we do listen with our hands what we do in our hearts. We covet. We're not content with what we have. We're not content with what God has given us. Why? Let's get below the surface a little bit. Why? Why why are we not content? Well, one, we are too busy keeping our eyes on the things of this world and not on the things above. We're so obsessed with this world and the temporary attraction that it brings. And so we long for the things that we look at most often. I think another reason is because we have a sense of entitlement. Why do we steal? We have a sense of entitlement oftentimes. I deserve it. Why why do they have that and not me? I deserve that too. Or that should be mine. Look at all that I'm doing. And I think sometimes we steal just out of sheer laziness. We're not willing to work hard for the things that we can have. Instead, we want to take and lazily move through this life. But I want you to look at verse 28. The call is crystal clear. Instead of stealing, replace it with this. Rather, let him labor. Let him work. Doing honest work with his own hands. Why? Why? Is it just, I love this one. It doesn't just stop. You, you'd think right, that a, a thief oftentimes will ask this question to people. And this is a, a classic counseling passage, by the way, to help people change. And you know, I'll, I'll ask this question. When does a thief no longer become a thief in God's eyes? And most people will say, well, when he stops stealing. But the biblical answer is no, actually. It's when he starts working. And it doesn't just stop there. It's when he actually works and earns enough so that he can actually share with others. It's an incredibly powerful principle that God is 
putting in front of us this morning. And, and the call is really this. Look, stop taking other people's stuff. Get a job so that you can give other people stuff, right? And, and it is, too, a great reminder of the nature of work and vocation, you know, that God has called us to work hard, and God gives us a sense of fulfillment even in our work. And work is a good thing. So many of us want to get away from work, and we believe that work is somehow sinful or wrong, right? This is bad. It's distracted me from doing the things that God wants me to do. No, God wants you to work. He does. He designed you to work right from the very beginning of creation. God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said to Adam, work. God calls us to use our talents and abilities and gifts to build up others around us, to do good for people. It's not about using others to build our kingdom. You see, Theologically, you can say, what's the theological underpinning here? The idea there of giving to others is a crucial theological statement. This idea of generosity and caring for others. This is all throughout the Old Testament, by the way. This is the very character and nature of God. He built this in the Old Testament commandments. He made sure that the nation of Israel was always intent upon caring for the orphans and the widows, those who were needy, for the sojourners and the strangers. He was always wanting to care, right? Leave a portion of your field, right? Don't, don't clean the whole field. Don't take all of it. Leave a portion there so that the poor can come along and pick at the corners of your field so they can be cared for by you. You see how God works here? God loves, loves the poor and the needy, and you can transfer that right over spiritually, can't you? It's the poor and the needy that God brings to himself. And so God allows us to express, listen, a piece of his heart to people around us. He says, you get to be like me. You get to love the, the poor and the needy like me. You get to manifest my character to the world around you by caring for people, working hard, and then giving what I have first given to you. I love it. It's such a, a powerful picture of the joy of being like God. You know, John Wesley once said this, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And he would qualify that statement as we would as well. But I love that principle. Listen, work hard and give much. Right? What God has blessed you with, he expects you to use for his kingdom and his purposes. He expects you to take that and to build what will last for eternity. Don't steal Work and give. And then fourthly, notice what he says here. Don't tear down, build up. This is how you live the new life in the body of Christ. And he goes right to our speech. Something that can so often be so very destructive and damaging. He says, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The word there he uses for corrupting or unwholesome, as some translations have it, is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe rotten fruit or rotten fish, and it's such a fitting uh, kind of word that paints this analogy for us. It's putrid, it is filthy, it is destructive and corrosive. Corrupt talk does not nourish you in any way. It makes you sick. And corrupt talk comes, as we know from Scripture, from a corrupt heart, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we know the damage that words can do. You know, you know the phrase, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, that was, that was clearly, clearly written by somebody who was so damaged by words, they were simply trying to give themselves a coping mechanism. Just keep saying it over and over, and maybe it'll be true. It's so dumb. But listen, the most hurtful things in our lives right now, if you think of the most pain you've ever been in in your life, most of you would run towards emotional pain caused or inflicted by somebody who loved you and said something so hurtful to you. And if you had to choose between physical pain and the emotional pain of that moment, you would choose physical pain every single day of the week. I can think, even, you know, I'm walking in grace and been forgiven, but in my mind, I can think of things right now, things even that the Lord's bringing to my mind of people in the past who've said things that have hurt me, and things I've said to others and hurt them. I mean, words are so brutally painful, and we know because we use them in this way so very often. With our tongues, 
James reminds us we can do such great damage. Such a little thing. Man, it can set a whole forest ablaze. Proverbs is filled with warnings against the abuses of the tongue. Let me just give you a couple examples. Proverbs 15 verse 4 says this, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle tongue, you can breathe life into somebody with the way you speak to them, or you can just break their spirit. You can crush them. You can drive them into the ground. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Your tongue has the ability to give life or death. It's so important for us to remember, listen, Jesus said that we will give an account for every careless word spoken. Do you realize that? One day we will stand before God and we will give an account for every careless word spoken. I mean, this is why we need to be so, so slow to speak, isn't it? Our tongues can damage people for a lifetime. You know, I just, listen, some of you in here, you've been so damaged by what people, have. you are living in a constant place of hurt and pain because of how people have spoken to you, because of what they've said to you. And I just want to encourage you, listen to me, listen to me, the word of God trumps any word that anybody has ever said to you. Whatever hurtful word, whatever destructive thing that has been said to you, whatever you think defines your identity because of what somebody else has said to you, listen to me, it bears no weight when it comes to what God's word says about you. You are his child, you are loved by him, you are precious in his sight. Our words are meant to be constructive, building up, not corrupting, and that's why he tells us exactly how we are to speak. And all that God will give us grace to hear this this morning and to put it into action in our lives. He says, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Only such as is good for building up. This requires such great intentionality. I mean, but here, Paul is calling us to be thoughtful about the kind of words we're using, to not be flippant or haphazard, but actually intentionally be looking for ways to build other people up, to say the things that are going to strengthen them, that are going to encourage their heart, that are going to push them forward in spiritual maturity and godliness. Sam Crabtree in his book, Practicing Affirmation, says that we can sin in two ways when it comes to our speech and, and giving affirmation to others or not. He says this, we can communicate with idolatrous commendation, which is for the praise of man to build up others with no thought of God, or we can sin by failing to commend the commendable. And this is another sin of omission, in other words. He's saying this, that it is a sin to not build up those who are deserving and needing to be built up, not to speak truth and lovingly care for those and encourage them. Our goal is to give grace to those who hear. And notice that he says here, there's a good qualifier here, as fits the occasion. In other words, it's wrong to say the right thing at the wrong time, Right? I mean, you think about this all the time. So often we're so intent on speaking the truth, we're not considerate of the circumstances that we're speaking in. My, my son the other day was trying to, to help out, and um, my youngest son had, had reached up, he climbed up on the counter, and he grabbed a knife, and he was walking around like a maniac with this knife in the kitchen. And my other son sweetly tries to grab him and grab the knife, and he grabs the blade of the knife and pulls it, and he slices his finger wide open. You know, and the first thing that comes to my mind, to my own shame, is like, don't you know you're not supposed to grab a knife? Like, really? Like, is now the time for that conversation? He's on the floor like he got shot. <laughs> you, know, you, you come across people all the time in the church who are living out the consequences of their sin. Right? They've made foolish decisions, they've done sinful things, and now they're experiencing the, con, con, the, the consequences of their sin, living it out. And you can walk up to them and say, you know what, you reap what you sow. Is it true? Yeah? Should you do it? No. We need to be so careful with our speech. 
And the theological reason here that he gives us, I believe, is found in verse 30. Look at this. This is, this is so, so interesting. And I don't think he just throws this in kind of as a, uh, like a qualification of the whole package. I think this is directly related to the way we speech, speak. In verse 30, he says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit of God that is within us, that has indwelt us the day of our, at the day of our salvation. Listen, He has sealed us. We've looked at that in, in chapter 1. We are uh, God's owners. God is owned, uh, owns us, excuse me. The seal it demonstrates God's ownership of our lives. And, and the indwelling presence of His Spirit has sealed us for the day of our redemption, guaranteeing that one day we will stand in the presence of the Lord and our bodies will be fully redeemed. And you can kind of get a sense here in which Paul is saying, don't tear down what is God's. Don't rip apart what is owned by God, what he is making beautiful, what he is perfecting, what he is maturing. Don't you dare tear down and oppose the work of the Spirit of God in this person's life. Can you kind of see that there? Like the Spirit of God is in you for the sake of building you up. You realize that? You are indwelt with the presence of God so that you can be purified and purged of sin and made more like Jesus Christ. And when we rip people down, we are directly confronting the work of the Spirit of God in that person and in us. I think in another sense, just, just think about this for a moment. Our words have such a unique ability to grieve the Holy Spirit. All sin does, by the way. All sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Let's make no mistake about that. But the way we speak does in a unique way. Why? Because God's words are the words of life. Think about this. From the very beginning of creation, God speaks and creates life. In our salvation, there's a parallel Paul draws out in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and he says, in the same way God spoke and created the world and created light from darkness, so he spoke and light came in the darkness of your hearts and you were opened up to Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God, you have to see, takes the Word of God, the, the revelation of God, and illuminates it, and un, opens our eyes so that we might understand it. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of it is understood because of the Spirit of God. Remember when the disciples said to Jesus, he said, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave me too? To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. John 17, 17. Sanctify them, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You see, God's Spirit takes God's word and he's intent on building us up with it. The Spirit has always been involved in that work from the very beginning of time. And so the, the reason that we are given here, I believe, is that we are to let our words be like God's words. Let them do what God does with His words. And may our words not grieve the Holy Spirit, but may they be a blessing to the Spirit. Finally, notice this. Don't resent, reconcile. And here these last two verses get down to the heart, I think, of Christian behavior. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, at first glance, it might seem like he's just simply rattling, rattling off a few of related sins, but he's really not doing that. Really, what he's doing is showing us the process of sin. Then he starts inward, and he begins to work it outward in our lives, and he shows us what that looks like. He says we must put off bitterness, that internal stewing on anger that builds over time, and wrath. That's the beginning of the intense burning towards others because of bitterness, there is that festering anger that he draws upon there. And then he, he moves even further to clamor, which is like public shouting. You can see this, this is getting more and more out of control. And slander is abusive language. And he lands at this place of malice, which is just outright hostility towards others. And you can just see how this has no place in the body of Christ. And he says, in their place, we're called to put on kindness and forgiveness. 
You know, bitterness and resentment is a, is a prison that is locked from the inside. And the only way you get out is to forgive and to reconcile. And here we're reminded in verse 32 to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, we should be a people who are known for kindness and forgiveness based on the depth of God's kindness and forgiveness that he has first shown towards us. You know, Paul says in Titus 3, 4 to 5, he says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. The psalmist says this, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in steadfast love. Psalm 130 says this, if you consider sins, Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. The picture that we have throughout all of Scripture is that God is kind and forgiving and we are to imitate Him. This is how we got this new life in the first place. It makes sense that this is now how we live this new life. And in Ephesians, Paul gives us what is one of the most powerful verses on forgiveness. As God in Christ forgave you, he says. And the implication is obvious. If Jesus can forgive us, then there is nothing for which we should not forgive another person. Should there be consequences for actions? Yes, sure, of course. But here we see, listen, it is not an option to not forgive in the family of God. It is not an option. I know what some of you are thinking. I, I, I've heard excuse, I mean, I, I've heard a million excuses. Well, you know what? I'm just, I'm not ready to forgive this person. Aren't you thankful Jesus never said that to you? Well, well, it's, it's easy for God to do, but I'm not God. Really? He put his spirit within you. He's helping you. He can do what you can't. What if they do it again? That's not your business to worry about. How can I know if they really mean it? You are not the judge, jury, nor are you the executioner. You don't know what they did to me. Was it enough to put Jesus on the cross just like your sins? You know, Jesus taught us to dwell on how he forgave our infinite debt and then to be quick to forgive others when they sin against us. Not to forgive is to not rightly understand or appreciate Jesus' forgiveness of us. We're called to think on his kindness, on his love and his forgiveness daily, believing that it will change us, believing it will make us like him. And so this morning... Through the Lord's table, we're going to think on him and think on the cross and think on his forgiveness.